During Macon's bicentennial year celebration, a strong case can be made that the city actually had its beginning 17 years prior in 1806. Hello, I'm Ben Sandifer, and on this episode of Middle Georgia Podcast, we begin a four-part series about historic Fort Hawkins, the events leading up to the creation of this landmark, the fort's role in America's history, discoveries and preservation of the fort since then, and the exciting future for Fort Hawkins. And what better way to begin this series than a conversation with the man for whom the fort is named, Colonel Benjamin Hawkins. But since Colonel Hawkins died in 1816, that would be impossible, right? Maybe not. Perhaps we can bring you the next best thing. Marty Willett studied the life of Colonel Hawkins and has portrayed the Colonel since the fort's bicentennial in 2006. And for this podcast, Marty returns to the role of Benjamin Hawkins. Colonel Hawkins, let's begin with the backstory and the events leading up to you coming to what we now know as Macon and Middle Georgia. Exactly. How did this North Carolina-born son come to be in middle Georgia. Well, in fact, it was uh, my service to the country that got me there that began during the American Revolution with George Washington. I had grown up on my father's farm plantation in North Carolina, where I was born, a neighbor of Nathaniel Macon, as a matter of fact. And while attending the College of New Jersey at Princeton, the American Revolution broke out. I I was uh, the carriage driver which helped the president of the college escape the British. That obviously did not escape George Washington's attention, nor my proficiency in French. And I was recruited to become a junior officer on uh, his Revolutionary War staff as his French interpreter. Coming to middle Georgia is because of George Washington, as you will see. After a very long and illustrious career in politics, the first senator from North Carolina, but when President Washington asked me to become the Indian agent of all the land south of the Ohio River, I could not decline that invitation. And what did being his Indian agent entail? Everything. Completely. And maybe I should back up and, and you would understand the mechanics of how we got to become an Indian agent. In 1757, at Coleraine, at the mouth of the St. Mary's River, which was serving as the trading post for the Native Americans. At that particular treaty, we negotiated the land to the Oconee River in Georgia. And that began the transition to middle Georgia. In fact, Coleraine, being at the mouth of the St. Mary's River, was as far away from the Indian nation as you could get. And George Washington wanted us to be in the Indian nation. So in 1797, Fort Wilkinson was founded on the Oconee River. It would become what you call, I believe, Milledgeville. But by 1802, more treaties would be negotiated. So by 1805, the Native Americans had relinquished their claim of the land from the Oconee to the Oak Mulgee River. And thus was the birth of Fort Hawkins in 1806. But the fort system was not just for defense and the U.S. Army. 
It was also part of the U.S. factory system. The factory was a trading post set up to principally the deerskin trade with the Native Americans, and it was at one time lucrative. But that was the purpose of Fort Hawkins, a military outpost on the frontier across the Yokmogi River was the Muscogee Creek Nation, Indian Territory, an Indian nation right across the river from where Fort Hawkins was allowed to be built. The Creek Nation had allowed, they had requested after they gave up the land to hold onto their sacred old fields, a five by three mile section of land on the eastern bank of the Okmulgee and the U.S. government agreed. And part of the agreement, Fort Hawkins was born because Benjamin Hawkins, who by this time had become known as the beloved man of the four nations. It's hard to imagine my name being mentioned as beloved by the four nations, but it was the Creek, Cherokee, Chickasaw, and Chicksaw. I had been working with them since the 1790s throughout the South. But in 1806, Fort Hawkins was allowed to be built on the highest hill of the sacred old fields. But in 1804, the Fort Factor at Fort Wilkinson, the factor who ran that factory was Jonathan Halstead from New Jersey. Oh, and having New Jersey in me attending Princeton, we were very good friends and both had great empathy for the Native Americans. But Jonathan Halstead moved the Trading Post factory to the Oak Mulgee Old Fields in 1804, two years before Fort Hawkins was even founded. So you see, the fort did a lot more than just become a military fort. It was a place the Native Americans came to trade the bearskins for modern goods. And that's what took place at Fort Hawkins more than any other endeavor. I always like to think that it was my leadership that helped detour any, any violence uh, in the Fort area, and that was maintained. Meanwhile, I was way over on the next river, the Flint River, in what you would call Crawford County today, and that's where I had my trading post and agency and model farm. That's where I raised my family and took care of all my business occasionally making the trip to Fort Hawkins. It only took a day to ride from the agency to Fort Hawkins. Now, Colonel Hawkins, did you personally select the site for Fort Hawkins or were you involved in that decision? And if so, why that particular location? I was allowed to choose the site. Well, it was really no choice. I picked the highest hill of those sacred old fields the highest elevation right on what is called the fall line with not just a scenic, but a strategic view from the Fort Hilltop on the surrounding countryside. Furthermore, Fort Hawkins looked out onto the Muskogee Creek Nation right at the beginning of the Lower Creek Trading Path. So picking that location was not by accident but I took great pains to pick the best place for this new frontier outpost. And that's what it was, a frontier outpost, a military fort and a 
trading post. There's been some discrepancy over how much land was part of Fort Hawkins. Can you clear that up? I am so glad history finally cleared that up. Since I died in 1816 and was asked to come back several times to the fort site, I gained tremendous historical hindsight. So yes, I, I can actually address that because John C. Butler's history, which was written decades after the fort was decommissioned and abandoned, that he wrote the history and, and actually said that it was a 16-acre fort. Can you imagine the log stockade it would take to surround that fort? Actually, the modern archaeology that was conducted at the bicentennial of the fort finally documented the actual size and shape of the original Fort Hawkins. The real Fort Hawkins was finally known, making a lot of the past illustrations and photos really uh, suspect. Meanwhile, I'm proud to know that you still remember old Fort Hawkins by the 1930s replica blockhouse. Not on the top of the hill, but we actually had two, two of those blockhouses in 1806. And that one that stands today proudly is a reminder to everyone in middle of Georgia that what you call civilization began with Fort Hawkins and George Washington's plan for civilization to help assimilate the Native Americans peacefully into American culture. 1806, when the fort was first established, was it called Fort Benjamin Hawkins? Never. Thank you for that historical clarification. It was only called Fort Hawkins. I, I had a gentle protest at the naming of the fort, but everyone insisted, and it was Fort Hawkins, never Fort Benjamin Hawkins. The replica blockhouse that is there today and open for tours on weekends, how close is that to the original? Well, the brief archaeology in the 1930s that helped create the Okmulgee National Monument and Fort Hawkins documented the footprint for that southeast blockhouse. And because archaeology had documented the footprint, the Daughters of the American Revolution, the Nathaniel Macon chapter to be exact, raised funds and built that replica in the 1930s. I'm amazed to discover that one of the first lady architects in Georgia actually designed that reconstruction. And in fact, sadly, it was ridiculed because it's the horror made of concrete. Well, it's still there today, thank goodness. And at that time, that was a new technique in building the high rises in New York and Chicago. The high rises using reinforced concrete. They did a wonderful job on that replica at Fort Hawkins, and it still stands today. Is it accurate? How could it be? but it is a wonderful reflection of our original frontier fort. Our logs never lasted that long, to be sure. So that building material was a, a, just a wonderful twist of fate. And that is a reminder, but I hope everyone remembers, that is not Fort Hawkins. That 
was just part of Fort Hawkins. In 1806, there was no 16 acres. It was less than two acres and more of a geometric shape with the two blockhouses on diagonal corners with a palisade wall, 10 to 12 feet circling the whole enclosure, and inside the enclosure, living quarters, the trading post, offices, headquarters, and some support facilities, even though those were mostly outside the actual U.S. Army Fort. You're listening to Marty Willett's portrayal of Colonel Benjamin Hawkins. Colonel, you had a bit of a confrontation there at the fort with the Georgia militia. What was that all about? One of the um, problems we had was when the Georgia militia tried to come into the fort, they had not been authorized to enter U.S. Army Fort, and it was military protocol, and they created a new fort. And it was nearby, and I think you have a golf course there to name Bowden, but that was Camp Hope. That was for the Georgia militia. Why? Fort Hawkins was for the U.S. Army soldiers only, and with tight security around that trading post, too. So it was just like a modern Army installation, except it was 1806, and it was not primitive. We were close to everything in the world, even though across the river was native territory, the Muscogee Creek Nation. Colonel, what role did Fort Hawkins play during the War of 1812? So important, and it's so sad it's been forgotten. But I must bask up to tell you why. And that was one of the most amazing things to happen at Fort Hawkins, because I was allowed by the Creek Nation to use basically that lower creek trading path and create a, quote, six foot horse path right through the Creek Nation to connect Fort Hawkins to Fort Stoddard in Alabama. Later, it became known as the Federal Road and became the fastest link from Washington to New Orleans than even the Natchez Trace. So that Federal Road and that six-foot horse path, it first crossed the Okmulgee River near You have a a stribbling bridge and a Rose Hill Cemetery there today. That was the first ferry following the Lower Creek trading path. The later ferry was downstream at um, a Reading Memorial Bridge, and that's where the first toll bridge in the Macon was located, as well as ferry. Colonel, I'm going to mention a name that's been tied to Macon's early history and see what you can tell me about her. Martha Cook. What have you heard about Miss Cook? What is her claim to fame? That she was the first Euro-American born in this area in 1812. She was a daughter of Captain Philip Cook. Exactly. And he was a commandant at Fort Hawkins. In the War of 1812, he was in charge. But that is erroneous. And the family has even understood that. Because remember our factor, Jonathan Halstead? He had moved here in 1804 and was having children here before Fort Hawkins was even built, much less before the War of 1812. Now, if I may interject, I'm sad my children weren't included in it because I started having children at the agency in the 1790s. So 
my children were the same descent as Miss Cook. So thank you for helping me clear that up. Jonathan Halstead's family was amazing. After the fort moved and Jonathan died, they sued the government for back money that Jonathan had spent trying to help the Native Americans. That's why he and Benjamin Hawkins got along so well. And I'm proud to call Jonathan Halstead a friend. I believe he is laid to rest at the Fort Hill Cemetery. Although some speculation as why the Great Temple Mound at Okmoge in many maps are called Halstead's Mount. It could have been no deed. It had been not worth the paper it had been written on. So that was never documented, but Halstead's Mount. And that brought up Fort Hill Cemetery. I've often been asked, were soldiers buried at Fort Hawkins? Do you know the answer to that, Ben? I'm going to say no, because with all the archaeology that's been done since then, they would have found them. Exactly. And the truth is, it was against U.S. Army regulations. And that's why Fort Hawkins had a separate burial site that became known as the Fort Hill Cemetery. The neighborhood collapsed around it. Most of the graves have collapsed. Jonathan Halstead, widow Lavinia Hawkins, and perhaps several hundred U.S. Army soldiers are at Fort Hill in unmarked graves. The forgotten warriors from the forgotten frontier of early American history. But Fort Hill even has part of the Federal Road running through it, still visible today. It is an amazing piece of history in Macon that I hope is further remembered, honored, and respected. I'd like to see my, my widow, Lavinia, remembered there one day. A, a former mayor put up a little plaque there, and it said, on this land, settlers, soldiers, and Native Americans fought. And I'm here to clear that record up. Uh, no bloodshed like that ever took place in the Fort Hawkins vicinity. Remember, we're part of the sacred old fields. No blood was shed there. No fighting was going on. I think that's been misrepresented in history. Colonel Hawkins, tell me about your own family. How many children? What were their names? In 1797, I had met a young lady at Coleraine and her father, an American revolutionary soldier, a veteran, and Lavinia accompanied me to the agency on the Flint River. Uh, there's some speculation she came later, and that's not the truth. There's a letter that documents her presence with me in 1797. Although we married much later, it was a common law marriage. And there were more pressing issues because we weren't on the frontier. We were in the thick of the frontier. Uh, simply surviving was an effort, believe me. And we did it so well in the agency, I was so proud to have the help of Lavinia Downs, daughter of Isaac Downs. In 1799, she gave me my first daughter, Georgiana. I had six daughters, Muscogee, Cherokee, Carolina, Virginia, and Jeffersonia. And my only son was named James Madison Hawkins. 
And then my nephew came from North Carolina, William Hawkins, and he stayed just like family. There was a huge family of craftsmen, even Moravian missionaries on the frontier, in the middle of it on the Flint River. Without Lavinia, I might not have made it. I was never in good health, and that was no secret. In fact, when George Washington asked me to become the temporary principal agent of the Indian land south of the Ohio, it was President Jefferson that made it permanent. In fact, George Washington left office right after I began my work in the late 1790s. And rheumatism and gout and fevers tormented all my life, even though I rode horseback not just between the Flint River Agency and Fort Hawkins, but all across the Southeast, laying out boundary lines set by treaties, meeting with Native Americans, representing the government to them, trying to maintain positive relations by introducing Natives to agriculture, animal husbandry, domestic skills, and they flourished at the agency and without Lavinia helping me, I'm not sure how I would have made it. I could ride a horseback, but walking was a little more of a problem because the gout and rheumatism plagued me nearly my entire life. It was difficult to say the least, and my health was my biggest problem. That is until the red sticks came along. Explain the red sticks. I had been able to keep lower and upper creeks. Uh, the nation was kind of divided into that way. And the lower creeks really liked this plan for civilization. They were adapting very well and being proficient. At one time, one of my creek nurseries had 5,000 peach trees in it. They were learning and doing well with a new way of life, but the upper creeks were suspicious. Those suspicions were compounded and fueled by the British wanting more territory back from them. And they had lost it all in a certain little revolution I had just participated in. And now they're using my Native Americans, my charges, to come after me. And in fact, their war clubs had red on them and they became known as red sticks. They were raiding little settlements, pioneer homes that were allowed to be in the Indian nation. But in 1813, the massacre at Fort Mims, Alabama, when several hundred men, women, children, and Native Americans were massacred by the red sticks, that changed everything and led to the Creek War during the War of 1812 and the beginning of the end of Indian removal and peaceful Native relations in America. What are your thoughts when I bring up the most prominent name from the War of 1812, Andrew Jackson? Oh, Hickory. You know, I had uh, known Andrew Jackson from his days in Congress when I was in the Senate. We, we knew each other in Washington. And matter of fact, there were only three members of Congress who voted against President Washington's farewell. They didn't like the resolution because Washington was a federalist. Two of those three were Nathaniel Macon and Andrew Jackson. 
I had many, many different Indian treaties. And unfortunately, my poor health did not allow my personal participation in the Indian Territory to actually keep everything calm. I was too ill. And the Fort Mims Master caught me and everybody by a sad surprise. And that actually allowed Andrew Jackson, the authority, to raise a huge militia from Tennessee to come in and get those red sticks. And they would probably say that was the massacre of Horseshoe Bend today in National Park. But yes, he did massacre almost the entire red stick nation at Horseshoe Bend. And in 1814, at the Treaty of Fort Jackson, he forced the Creeks to give up their land, even in Georgia. That was the beginning of my heart breaking, Ben. Now, I was called the beloved man of the four nations, and I knew full well what Native Americans called Andrew Jackson. He was Satan. And Andrew Jackson came down and literally wiped them out. Going on to New Orleans, where many of those troops had gone through Fort Hawkins to get there, and later when he came to the fort, he was just disgusted at the conditions, and that's why he camped out of what is called, I think, Jackson Springs Park today. I can't imagine him camping so close on springs at the river with all the mosquitoes and snakes and alligators, but if that's what he did, fine. We were high up on the hill, but the fort was in deplorable, rotting condition after it was abandoned, and it was abandoned quickly after the end of the War of 1812. Why did Macon come to be named Macon instead of Hawkins, or maybe Fort Hawkins, Georgia? And you can't say because Hawkinsville was already taken because that was much later as an afterthought. However, I've often wondered that too. Now, I died in 1816 at the agency. Right after that, the agency was burned to the ground, including all my books and everything burned, the family barely escaped. That reflects how much hate there was from everybody. I was trying to make peace with everyone under those circumstances, which was impossible. It's more curious when you realize that the trading post at Fort Hawkins by 1815 had moved across the Chattahoochee River, the new frontier, at a place called Fort Mitchell, Alabama. And there is a Fort Mitchell, Alabama today. Even more amazing, by 1817, Army headquarters function will move to the new frontier at Fort Smith, Arkansas. And there is a Fort Smith, Arkansas today. I can only say, I would guess it was political muckraking because I was so hated by Andrew Jackson and his cronies, like Nathaniel Macon, I think they spread the rumor even that I was married to a Native woman. I frowned on that. I told my subordinates that would dilute their authority over the Natives. No, Lavinia was not a Native. She inherited by a state which no Native American could do. And in fact, that still has been perpetuated as a myth, that she was the Queen of Tukabachi. No, I turned her down. I was offered another maiden. They turned me down when their matriarchal society said, no, 
We take care of the affairs of the household, not you. Lavinia made me happy and raised my children, and that gave me the greatest joy. But then to know my agency burned. Luckily, some of my papers perpetuated my travels through the Creek country. My prolific letters had been saved. So are there ways to discover me? My gravesite on the Flint River in Crawford County is a new historic site, and it's been recently upgraded in the most handsome way. I'm proud. The National Monument in downtown Roberta, erected in the 1930s, I'm proud to have a national monument. But on the plaque, it says I lived among the savages. I wrote a letter to President Washington saying, please do not call the Cherokee savage any longer. No, the Creek and the Cherokee and other Native Americans were actually becoming Americans. So I can safely say the 20 years I served the country as the Indian agent living in the Indian nation, those 20 years were the most peaceful in Native American relations in the United States of America. And all of that created by 1823, the birth of Macon, and those folks hated me so much, they took my junior, literally, Nathaniel Macon. Uh, we were neighbors. We grew up together. He was a freshman. I was a senior at prison. I knew young Nat, and I find it almost humorous that Macon has his name on it and not Fort Hawkins because the fort deserved that recognition. Marty Willett portraying Colonel Benjamin Hawkins. In upcoming podcasts, we'll learn more about the archaeology done at Fort Hawkins, the elementary school that was the fort's namesake, and what's in the present and future for historic Fort Hawkins, the birthplace of Macon. For Middle Georgia Podcasts, I'm Ben Sandifer. Yeah.